Chapter 15 of Darkness and Daylight, or Lights and Shadows of New York Life. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Kristen Hand. Darkness and Daylight, or Lights and Shadows of New York Life. Chapter 15 by Helen Campbell. A day in a free dispensary, relieving the suffering poor, missionary nurses and their work, a touching story. In the lower wards of the city is concentrated the strange foreign life that gives New York its title of cosmopolitan. One might even say that these streets, with their always flowing tide of humanity, a procession never-ending and never-ceasing its march, was simply the continuation of that begun in the Middle Ages, of which Michelet says that they presented the spectacle only of a vast funeral pile, on which mounted successively Jew, Saracen, Catholic, and Protestant. We do not burn the people, but we do stifle and poison them in the tenement houses which are the disgrace of the city. In the old days, say, fifty or sixty years ago, these streets were quiet, shaded places filled with the homes of the well-to-do. First came the Irish, and the Americans fled before them. Presently, the newcomers vacated the tenement houses for better quarters a little farther up, and as they left, hod-carrying and kindred employments, and developed into the rulers of the city, they ascended still farther, till now Fifth Avenue knows them, and many another street into which money has carried them. Later came the Italians to fill the emptying places, while the German Jews crowded the streets farther down. Now they too are moving on, forced out by the swarm of Polish, Hungarian, and Russian Jews. They fill whole streets, as well as the schools which once had a monopoly of the German element, and the old New Yorker occasionally wonders where the American is to go. Cosmopolitan the city certainly is, since it is the first Irish and the third German city in the world. But one soon discovers that even under its most foreign aspect, these new arrivals grouped in picturesque confusion are not by any means the same as when at home. Already the new leaven has begun to work. The races have not yet blended, but the mere presence and contact of all these dissimilar atoms results in an amalgam which is itself American. London is an enormous aggregation of little villages. New York, even when one sees that each nationality has its own distinct place, is yet one, since every ballot cast in the eight or nine hundred ballot boxes open on election day finds its way at last to one center, typical of the real union underlying all differences. The terror often expressed as to the characteristics of the Russian and Polish Jews is, to one who has watched them closely, a very unfounded one. No one knows this better than the physicians of the great charity known as the Eastern Dispensary, which every year treats over 60,000 charity patients, mostly foreigners who are too poor to pay for medical advice or needed medicine. The point in regard to which fear is quite legitimate is the filth in which they live and the fact that in such filth, contagion is inevitable. Aside from this, they are far above the Irish in two cardinal virtues, thrift 
and abstemiousness. These virtues soon put them on their feet and make them in time property owners and employers. Why have they come? Because political persecution drove them from home. They were a friendless people before they came. They were not wanted there, and they are not wanted here. And yet they are here, to be dealt with in such fashion as we may. They are the most destitute people in the United States, for many of them fled from home, leaving every possession behind, and landed on free soil, paupers in everything but determination to work and earn. They land at Castle Garden, sick from confinement and dreadful crowding at sea, without money and without friends, and are directed to that quarter of the city that has become almost the exclusive property of their countrymen. They are hardly ever chronic charity seekers. Their diseases come from want and privation, very seldom from excess, and whoever looks into their patient faces sees a type that under favorable conditions will do good service to the Republic. What is a day at the Great Eastern Dispensary like? We will take Saturday, since it is the Hebrew holiday, and all the mothers who have been too busy through the week to pay much attention to their children's ailments wash and comb them now, and make part of the long procession climbing the stairs of the old armory, which has for many years served as dispensary, and which forms part of the old Essex Street Market. All the way down Grand Street from the Bowery, it is a German city that we are in, till, as Essex Street is neared, the names change somewhat, and over little shops one sees Hebrew signs and other tongues no less bewildering. Hardly an American is visible, save a stray visitor it may be, or someone hurrying through on business. The current at Essex Street sets toward the dispensary. One has only to follow, and in a moment, as the corner is turned, one sees the long flight of stairs and becomes one of the climbing crowd. At the top of the stairs, a door opens into a large room in which are many benches, all of different colors. This is the first mystery soon made plain. At the upper end of the room is a railed-off corner, the distributing bureau, and before the physician in charge is a long pad of tickets, of the same colors as the benches. The managing physician smiles as he anticipates our question. Why these many colored tickets and benches? Generally, but one ticket is given in the ordinary dispensary, he says. It gets dirty or torn, and there is also the danger of some infectious disease being communicated by it. Now we give fresh tickets at every visit, and, as most of the patients cannot read, the tickets are colored like the benches, so that patients know just where to go and wait their turn. All these doors opening from this receiving room lead into rooms where each specialty is treated. For example, this red ticket is surgical, and the patient goes and sits on a red bench till he hears the little bell from within, which is the signal to tell him his turn has come. Blue is medical, yellow, eye and ear, gray, diseases of women and children, green, dental. The white tickets, one with letters printed in blue and the other in red ink, indicate the morning medical and surgical treatment. They are all numbered, you see, and thus form a register of the number of cases daily and their character. Now the different rooms in turn can be visited, and an idea of the whole got in this way. It was hard to leave the corner from which observations could be taken at this first point of all. The great room had already over a hundred in waiting, chiefly mothers with babies or little children, but all ages were there also, and all degrees of forlornness. 
All languages were heard, but the German preponderated, as all spoke it with more or less fluency. Many of them could not understand why they could not be treated at once, but they moved on at last, accepting the testimony of someone more familiar with the routine. Formerly, all medicine was free, and if a patient did not like it, he broke his bottle and came back for another kind. With the attempt to make the institution self-supporting, this ended. Free medicine is still given to those who cannot pay, but, recognizing the pauperizing tendency of the free system for all, a fee of ten cents is now charged for those who can pay. The Irish complain loudly of this arrangement and demand free treatment, but the majority of the Hebrews pay without question. Where they say they cannot, they receive medicine free on the first application, and their names are sent to the United Hebrew Charities Association, or to that for improving the condition of the poor, for investigation. The result of this is reported back to the dispensary. Thus, all applicants get immediate treatment, imposters are sifted out, and the deserving poor are brought to the notice of the benevolent at the time they most need it. Let us follow a patient with a blue ticket into the medical room. Our way lies past the drug department, before the window of which a crowd is already gathered. It is a motley one, stolid or eager, as national temperament compels. Weary mothers with sick and wailing babies in their arms, women with bandaged heads, and men with arms and slings. Children sent by sick fathers and mothers at home for needed medicine. On most of them is the unmistakable look that tells of patient suffering and half-starved lives. There is the Irish woman, ready for an instant assault on the clerk if he fails to give full measure, and her brother countrymen swearing that the city lets its doctor charge ten cents for a prescription when it's a free country and if all had their rights, charges would go down in a minute. The Italians eye them disdainfully and pay their money with dignity, and the sad-eyed Russian Jews give no token of what the inward comment may be. Reticence has grown with every century of oppression, and even freedom does not break the spell. There is nothing in the medical room but a table at which sit two physicians, two or three chairs, and a few instruments near the washstand. Before one of the young, ear-looking men is a large open book, and the hesitating mother who has just entered with her babe looks at it apprehensively. It is the register of cases, so admirably arranged as to be a history of each one. The questions include name, age, birthplace, nationality, and disease, with memoranda as to the treatment. The applicants are in all degrees of trepidation. Now and then a young girl may laugh as she answers the queries, but for the most part there is seriousness painful to witness. The chief difficulty appears to be bronchial troubles. Often it is a touch of pneumonia or influenza, most often dyspepsia, born of insufficient and improper food. The keen-eyed young doctor has, like all dispensary physicians, gained the power of almost instant diagnosis, and it will do him admirable service when he forsakes this training school for general practice. It is this that makes the experience so valuable and so much sought after that admission is now on formal and rigid examination, and the position is no longer unpaid as formerly, but a salaried one. There is no time to hear the stories many would tell. These come later when the visiting physicians make their rounds. One can see without words what some of them must be, but now and then there is a pause as some especially sad case presents itself, and the young doctor's eyes look pitifully at the forlorn faces. But the bench is full of waiting patients, and we must pass on to the surgical room. 
It is only slight operations that are performed here, all severer ones going to the hospitals. Everything is done with antiseptic methods. Bandages, instruments, all that must be used are treated in this way, and at the same time everything is done to cause as little pain as possible. Chloroform is administered if necessary, and cocaine applied freely to lesser hurts. Young roughs come in to have a cut from knuckles sewed up or a bad bruise dressed. Women whose husbands have beaten them or given them a black eye are here, and all types of accidental injuries. The work is of the swiftest. There is little outcry, and the cases succeed each other with bewildering rapidity. All are entered in the register, as in the other rooms, and nearly all thank the doctors as they go out. The children's room is just across, and to reach it we must once more go through the motley throng in the general waiting room. By this time it is fairly swarming. The air is something inexpressible, though windows are open all about. In the children's little room, where a dark-eyed physician with the gentlest of faces is sitting, a row of babies of all ages and types is in waiting. Each mother, or sometimes father, for these Hebrew fathers are like mothers with their little ones, is told to loosen all the clothing so that a thorough examination can be made. Often it is only some lung or chest trouble or more of general debility from wrong feeding. Sores, rashes, and so forth are sent into the room for skin diseases. Sometimes the babies cry. Oftener they look with pleased eyes at the kind faces, and sometimes they break into little gurgles and coos of applause. But they are sad-eyed little things, most of them, and take life very seriously, and often there is the frightened look that tells of neglect and frequent blows. There are shrieks from the dental room as we pass out, but they are mingled with a laugh, so that no one knows no tragedy is going on. The tragedy is nearer. On the stairs, waiting for breath to come, sits a little woman, with soft, dark eyes and the look of a hunted animal. By her is a man, tall and gaunt, with somber black eyes burning in his pale face. The woman nods to the doctor as she enters his room, but she cannot speak for the moment, and the man looks at him dumbly every feature worn with pain. A child presses against him with eyes like his own. The doctor stops for a moment, talks with husband and wife in German, and bids the man bare his back. Applying the stethoscope, he listens intensely to the patient's breathing, then turns away. There is little to be done, he says. He is nearly gone in consumption, but he does not know it, and I shall not tell him. His wife has asthma, as well as every one of the four children. They are hard workers, but down with sickness half the time, and then they half starve, for they tell no one of their condition till extremity is reached. The patience of these people has something terrible in it. This is the verdict of all who work among this order of the poor, and it is pleasant to see the change that grows slowly in them as the certainty of a living and freedom from oppression become confirmed. Their children will take on the spirit of the new life, and thus the city will have its return for any expenditure of money in general care. The perfecting of the dispensary system means a great decrease in the numbers who need hospital treatment, and it is the hope of all who understand the vital nature of the work done that the forty or more now in existence will all become self-supporting, at least in great degree. Prescribing at the dispensary itself is but the smallest part of the work done. Visiting physicians make a daily round among patients and thus have extended opportunity for detecting contagious diseases in their early stages. 
and by taking prompt measures they prevent the spread of such diseases throughout the city. As illustration, a patient who applied at the dispensary for relief was found to be suffering from scarlet fever. He was isolated from the other patients, and notice was given to the Board of Health. He was removed to his home and placed in charge of one of the dispensary's visiting physicians, who attended him constantly till he was well. This man lived in a crowded tenement, and in common with its other occupants, he earned a living by working with a sewing machine. The Board of Health exerted its authority, fumigated and disinfected the house and all clothing made or in process of manufacture, and prevented further similar work in the building till all danger was past. It is easy to see the extent to which this dangerous disease might have spread, but for its prompt discovery. In direct connection with general dispensary work, one finds the missionary nurses as cheery, bright-faced a set of women as the city holds. They must be strong, for with them it is not a question of many working hours, but how much endurance for constant work of the most trying nature, with, most often, not more than five hours sleep in the twenty-four. As to their duties, they are of all orders. First comes the attempt to make the patient go to a hospital very often unsuccessful because the poor have a terror of all hospitals. Even a rheumatic or partially paralyzed patient, who must necessarily be neglected, since friends and relatives are fighting for a living, will refuse obstinately. A dressmaker who had become helpless from inflammatory rheumatism said, I don't care. I'd rather die here at home when the time comes than at the hospital, where they cut you open before the breath is fairly out of your body. That's the way a friend of mine was served up last year just cut right up. Her folks didn't know no better than let her be took there, and after her death, which I suppose was helped along by the black bottle, them doctors, without asking leave of nobody, just slashed away at the poor thing, and then they botched her up again, and made a great pucker in the seam, such as I wouldn't allow a little prentice girl to make. When the nurse encounters such opposition as this, she has simply to do the next best thing, and this is the comment of one of them on the question. What are the duties of a missionary nurse? Duties? Well, besides giving medicine and sticking on plasters and taking temperatures, I sometimes have to cook and wash and scrub and beg. Scarcely a day passes that I don't boil gruel and broil chops for sick people, and often I have to roll up my sleeves and wash dishes or scrub the floor. Then I may have to go to some depository where benevolent persons send contributions and present a petition for sheets or blankets, or whatever else is needed among my patients, whom I sometimes find lying on piles of rags. My salary? Forty dollars the first month, the month of probation, and afterwards fifty dollars a month. If you were to go the rounds with me some day, I think you would say I earn it. Take today. I have this case of rheumatism I mentioned, and a consumptive patient whose eyes I expect to close tonight, and I have promised to be with her at the last. Then I have a cancer to dress, a bone fell into poultice, several cases of malaria to look after, for they need quinine every hour in the day and cannot be trusted to take it by themselves. And these are only a few of the cases. Do I have contagious diseases among my patients? Some days, but one thing I haven't. There is not a case of hypochondria in my care. It is the uptown nurses who have to deal with that kind of thing. My patients haven't any time for it. Is there a moral tucked away in that statement? My opinion is that there is, and a strong one.
Into the dispensary came one day a tall man, gray-haired, and with a face where sharp experience had graven deep lines far removed from the wrinkles of old age, whose type is most often seen there. Patient, intelligent eyes looked out under the heavy brows, yet eyes that could flash at will, and everything indicated fallen fortunes, as to which their owner would always keep his own counsel. He looked long and earnestly at the head physician. It was plain there was something to be asked, but evidently he was measuring the doctor before stating his case. He had come and gone there for a fortnight, describing a case and taking the medicine for a crippled child who he said could not come. He declined a visit from the visiting physicians, and the ailment was so simple that they did not press the matter. On this day he had come late and lingered till he saw the head physician take his hat. Then he quickly followed him, and when they were outside the door, said, Doctor, I cannot have the others, but I implore you to come with me for a minute. It will not take you more. Why didn't you tell the visiting physician? The doctor began, but stopped as he saw the man's imploring eyes and felt something more than ordinary need. The man gave one grateful look as the doctor followed, then walked on swiftly to a street but a little distance away, and turning the corner went up the stairs of one of the better order of tenement houses. At the top of the stairs he paused. I have no fee, he said. There is nothing left to give, but I will work it out if any work can be found. He opened the door as he spoke and held it open for the doctor, who entered and looked around in dismay. Save for the bed, one chair, and a kerosene lamp over which the man had evidently been cooking something, the room was absolutely bare. On the bed lay the emaciated form of a woman, the skin drawn tightly over the cheekbones, and the face ghastly with suffering. By her side lay the crippled child, with glassy eyes, and the same pinched, drawn look. The doctor bent over them for a moment, and then fiercely exclaimed, They are starving, man! What do you mean by leaving them to die like this? Are you mad? I have begged for work, and there was no work for me, said the man in heartbroken tones. I have pawned all there was to pawn till there is nothing left. My wife and child are dying, I know, and I must live till they are dead. The rest will be easy enough. The doctor descended the stairs and came back in great leaps, bearing restoratives and a can of milk he had snatched from the hand of one of the dispensary patients met at the foot of the second flight. The child's teeth were clenched, but after the first spoonful had been forced between them, she drank freely. The mother was more difficult to rouse, but soon she too had taken enough medicine and food to lose the death-like look, and then the doctor wrote a line or two and handed them to the man. Go round to the dispensary, he said, and give this to Dr. K, and then come back and tell me what this means. They must both go to the hospital. A faint cry came from the woman, who in a weak, almost inaudible voice exclaimed, Oh, not that. Let us all die if we must, but here, together, not there. I will not be taken away. You shall not be without your own consent, said the doctor soothingly and then waited quietly till the man returned, bringing the wine for which he had been sent. It was impossible to move her till she was stronger, for any attempt might end the feeble life. To provide actual necessaries and leave her in the hands of a missionary nurse was the only course, but the father protested that no one must come, and that he would do it all. He staggered from weakness even as he protested, and the doctor, who had diagnosed his case as of the same order, caught him as he fell forward. 
The nurse arrived while he was still unconscious and sped away again to the dispensary to get necessary supplies. A cot was brought and set up, and the haggard creature laid upon it, and plied with food and restoratives, till at last strength came back, and then the full story was told. He was an Italian refugee, a former companion of Garibaldi, a man of highest culture who had married an English wife, and who had come to America in hope of some day returning home with better fortunes. A fine linguist, he had taught languages successfully, till an operation, necessitated by some cancerous growth on the tongue, had ended this. Then he had tried many things, for none of which he had much fitness, hoping always that he might obtain a position with some publishing firm where his perfect command of English would make his other tongues more available. Such place had been promised, and then failed, and he had done odd jobs on the docks, shoveled coal, answered countless advertisements, and nursed the invalid wife whose courage still remained in spite of ever thicker and thicker disaster. She had grown worse day by day, and the child with her, so that he was forced at last to remain with them. Every article of furniture and clothing had been pawned. Both had a morbid terror of making their condition known, and so it had gone on till the struggle was nearly over for all of them. I studied your face many a time, the poor man said one day with grateful eyes on the doctor's face, but I could not speak. It is too late now. On the contrary, it is never too late the doctor made brisk reply. You must eat and get strong, and then we will see about work. I know of some for you, so hurry and get well. The sad eyes brightened. Work is all I want, he slowly said, and then was silent. A week later, the child died, a merciful release for the twisted little body which had never known anything but pain, and in another week the mother had followed her. When the undertaker came to measure for the second coffin, the father sprang at him with a cry like some wild animal robbed of its young, and would have murdered him but for the doctor and nurse, who threw themselves upon him. Together they bound his hands with a strip of the sheet, till a straight jacket was brought, and he was carried a raving maniac to Bloomingdale. There he is still, quiet and gentle, but hopelessly insane, never complaining, but certain that his wife and child will soon come for him, and sitting all day within sight of the door at the end of the ward. When night comes, he goes to his rest silently, but with returning daylight he resumes his ceaseless vigil, always watching at the door, and so his days pass and will continue to pass till the door above opens, and he enters the country where things that have grown uneven are made even again by his hand. End of chapter 15